Well, good morning. Um, I'd like to add my welcome to Christos. My name's Sam, and before we go any further, um, before anyone makes any comments, I'd like to say I am a very disappointed English rugby fan this morning. Well, let's move on quickly, and we're going to spend a few minutes now going through the passage that we just read together. So turn uh, back with me to it. It's page 28 in your pew Bibles, uh, Genesis chapter 27. And before we get into that passage, we might want to ask, what are we doing reading a passage like that in church? It's a fine piece of literature, sure, but it's not a very edifying story, is it? There aren't any good guys. It's a story of family conflict, of family favoritism, of family deception, of uh, taking advantage of elderly family members. It's not a story about happy families. And we might think that church is for happy families. Well, this story matters to us this morning because it is a story ultimately about God's family. Uh, These are the people that God has chosen to give his blessing to, uh, the promise of being his friends and the hope of eternal life with him. They're a very ordinary family then, but they're, they're God's church. And so they've got lessons for our families today uh, and for our church as we seek to live in light of God's promises to us, those same promises. And the fact that this is actually a story about an unhappy family, of a family in conflict, that actually turns out to be very good news for you and for me. Last week, we got the background to this unhappy family. Uh, We saw last week in chapter 25 that Esau and Jacob, these two brothers, are twins. But they're twins who are very different. Esau, the older, he's like a kind of a hunter-gatherer type. Uh, But he also cooks a great stew. So he's kind of like Bear Grylls crossed with poor Hollywood or something like that. Uh, And then Jacob, well, he's, he's more of a farmer. He's a bit more advanced. He's into his farming and domestication Uh, But he's also got an eye for a sharp deal. Uh, I couldn't really think of someone who was like that today, but maybe you can think of that type of person. And sadly, these two different twins divide their parents as well. Uh, We heard last week that Isaac, uh, because he loved the tasty food that Esau provided, loved Esau. And Rebecca loved Jacob. And that division uh, is worked out in this morning's story. The writer gives us four conversations in this story, but the two halves of the family never speak to each other unless they're trying to manipulate each other. The writer tells us that Isaac talks to his son Esau and Rebecca talks to her son Jacob. And then it's Jacob dressed as Esau who comes to steal his brother's blessing. It's not a very edifying story. Actually, steal, steals the blessing isn't quite the right word, because we also heard last week uh, that there was that, that kind of trade that happened, where uh, Esau sells his birthright and the blessing that comes with that of being the head of the family uh, to Jacob for a pot of stew. And so the blessing now does actually belong to Jacob. Esau has sold it. One more piece of background info we need to understand this story. Last week, we heard... Uh, that God had already determined the outcome of this family conflict. 
we heard uh, that God had told Rebecca that it would be Jacob who would be the head of the family. The older would serve the younger. And so what we've got this morning is, is a family fight, one of those fights for the inheritance. Uh, but these are inheritance rights to God's blessing. And God has already said that it will be Jacob who will be blessed. Uh, my plan this morning is for us to just look through those four conversations. We'll work our way through them. And we'll be trying to spot what it will look like for us as we live in light of God's blessing. What can we learn from this? So let's go into the first conversation in verse 1. Uh, this is the conversation between Isaac and Esau. And you can see it says in verse 1 that Isaac is old and his eyes are so weak that he can no longer see. He thinks he's dying and he wants to make sure that he can pass on the blessing to Esau. Now instead of making a will in those days, what you did was you gathered the whole family around you and you gave a kind of a death blessing where you parceled out the inheritance to the different members of your family. And what you said in those deathbed blessings went. It was like a will. You couldn't overturn it. But Isaac, instead of following custom and calling the whole family together, privately calls Esau to him and says, Esau, come here and go and get some food. Make me up a tasty stew and I will bless you. And so can you see what Isaac's doing? He's plotting to cut Jacob out of the blessing entirely. Well, I wonder if you spotted, as uh, we read through this morning, one of the clues that the writer gives us as to what is driving Isaac. He repeats the words tasty food six times and the word game eight times. He's flagging up what it is that's driving Isaac. It's his love for food. That's why he's wanting to bless Esau. He's an old man who's driven by his appetite. And so we don't get a very flattering picture of Isaac here. When his dad, uh, Abraham, thought that he was dying, what Abraham was concerned about was, was making sure that Isaac would have a godly wife so that the promises could carry on to the next generation. But when Isaac is dying, all he can think about is food and making sure that his favorite son gets the blessing, the one who gives him the food. And so his physical blindness is a kind of a picture of a sort of a deeper blindness, Isaac's world has kind of closed in on himself. He's a man whose main priority is his next meal. A man who's selfishly trying to decide who gets God's blessing. It's a sad end to what had been a life with a lot of promise. And so before we move on, uh, I think we should make a mental note to ourselves to not become like Isaac. It's easy for it to happen for individuals and for churches. And sadly, there are many churches that can look a lot like Isaac. Apparently, most concerned about preserving their own traditions or about just gathering a like-minded crowd who are like them, where they feel comfortable. Not concerned about bringing God's blessing to others. And so we need to keep asking ourselves, has our vision for God's purposes dimmed? Have we got that kind of short-sightedness where our world closes in and all we can really think about is self-preservation, about perpetuating ourselves? Well, let's leave frail Isaac in his tent, um, waiting for Esau to come back. But actually, before Esau leaves, 
uh, we become aware that there's someone else also present. Have a look at verse 5. Now, Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And so, once Esau is safely out of sight, she goes to speak to her favourite, her son. Uh, And this is our second conversation where Rebecca and Jacob speak. Rebecca can see an opportunity. Uh, Isaac's blind, and he doesn't seem that in touch with what's going on, to be honest. And so she tells this plan to Jacob. Jacob, if you go into your father with a kind of prepared meal, um, not one from the wilderness, but sort of supermarket version, uh, Isaac will bless you instead of Esau. Uh, Well, Jacob's got an objection to that, but notice that his objection isn't based on whether this is right or wrong. It's based on whether it will work. Have a look at verse 11. Uh, but, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. And interestingly, Rebecca says, my son... Let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. Well, Jacob goes along with it. And he gets dressed in Esau's clothes. He gets given a pot of stew that's been made to taste just like Esau's. And with his hands and neck covered in goat skins, he prepares to go in to his father. And I want to ask you, how do you respond to Rebecca's actions, to her decision? I reckon there's a few ways of looking at this, and I've been wrestling with this 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 week. She's been told that God will bless Jacob. She knows that Jacob is the one that God's blessing will come to. And so she's trying to bring about God's will in a way. But she's doing it in a very wrong way. But then maybe you start thinking, but hang on, maybe if she's so willing to use deception and not wait for God's timing on this, Is she just showing that really what she cares about is her son, Jacob, who she seems to live for, and not really about God? Well, we don't get an explicit comment. There's no kind of, oh, and Rebecca was really horrible. She was evil. The writer doesn't spell it out for us. He gives us a bit of space to think. So what do you think? He does give us a bit of a clue that this is definitely a wrong approach at some level. Uh, because unusually in Genesis, we're not told anything about Rebecca's death. We don't, she kind of goes out of the story completely after this, and we don't hear from her. And actually, if we think about what we've seen already in Genesis, this starts to look worse and worse. If you remember, the Bible tells us of a world that God in the beginning made good, a perfect world, um, until the, Adam and Eve, the first couple, were deceived by a serpent. And that led to them breaking uh, their relationship with God. And it messed up their relationship with each other as well. And evil came into the world. And now here we are, pages later, chapters later in the Bible story, and deception has come into God's family again. But it's even worse this time. Now God's family are deceiving each other and using these kind of serpent tactics against each other. We're going to see next week that this messes up their relationships with each other in in the family. And so we have to ask, is this going to mess up their relationships with God? 
Are we going to go back to that horrible situation where God sends the people away from him, out of Eden, because they've broken their relationship with him? Is it back to square one? And I'm guessing that that's our question too. Whenever we go against God's will, whenever we fail to trust him, whenever we realise that we're not good enough for God, is he going to rip up the plan? Are we in his plan? And actually, it's very easy to do the kinds of things Jacob and Rebecca did. It's very easy, isn't it, to want things for, for ourselves or for our children and not really stop to think, how would God want me to get this? Would he even want this for me at this time? Uh, I know that this is the, at the weekend when we've had the AQE results. Um, and I, was, I read an article on BBC News saying that the grammar schools are demanding photographic uh, evidence uh, for which children are coming to sit the exams because they're concerned that parents might actually send an older sibling to go and sit the exam uh, and so the younger child can get in. Now, I'm sure we wouldn't do that, but it's, it's interesting, isn't it? How far would we go to make sure that we could get our kids to pass the AQE? Would we do things that non-Christian parents would do? Where, where, where does our behaviour become distinctive? In job applications, university applications, it's very easy, isn't it, to just airbrush the truth a little bit, make ourselves seem a little bit better to get that job. Very easy in work, isn't it, to to hit send on one of those emails that closes the deal, but something important hasn't been flagged up very clearly to the person who's doing the deal with you. Very easy to join in with another person's deception and just go along with it. And perhaps most crucially of all for us, if we're Christian parents, is wanting our kids to come and know Jesus for themselves. We probably want that more than anything else in the world. Like Rebecca, she wanted her son Jacob to get the blessing. And so it's easy to then think, well, we need to make that happen, however, however and whatever cost. Maybe making it very, very easy for them to believe in Jesus without really showing them what that will mean. Sugarcoating the Christian faith. Not really trusting in God's way, God's means, God's truth to bring people to faith. Well, Jacob does as his mother suggests. And so he enters Isaac's tent, dressed as his brother Esau. And this brings us to the third conversation uh, between Jacob dressed as Esau and Isaac. And the narrator's really building the tension now as this scene develops. Uh, Verse 18, uh, uh, Jacob says to his father, My father, yes, my son, Isaac answered. Who is it? Isaac may be a bit doddery, but he's quite wary. He's going to take a bit of persuasion here. And Jacob says, literally, verse 19, Me, I'm Esau. Your firstborn. Can you imagine how Jacob would have felt? He's got no father, really. And probably all his life, he's wanted his father's approval, his father's blessing. So you imagine he must be absolutely quaking in his boots, but he commits himself to the lie, I'm Esau. And so he comes to offer the food. Uh, Isaac's suspicious because it's come so quickly, but uh, Jacob says, the Lord your God gave me success. And then Isaac says to Jacob, verse 21, come near so that I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. 
Jacob went close to his father Isaac. He touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. That's, I think, an initial blessing, a kind of a greeting. Isaac's still not convinced, though. Verse 24, are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. Verse 25, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate. He brought him some wine and he drank. Then his father said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. Jacob's having to use the whole range of counterfeit techniques to try and persuade Isaac, old Isaac, that he's really Esau. False words, fake hair, counterfeit food. And now as Jacob comes close for that final kiss, it's going to be Esau's finest clothing that Isaac smells. And we think, surely, surely, Jacob should not be getting this blessing. He doesn't deserve it, does he? It's not his. Or at least Isaac doesn't think it's his. But it doesn't, it doesn't, God doesn't stop it. Verse 27. So he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. I think Isaac might be dropping a subtle hint to Esau here that he's got a bit of a problem that he might need to deal with. But he moves on. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. That's it. It's happened. Isaac calls on the Lord to give his son the finest things of the earth, the riches of the earth, and to have the obedience of all of its people, including his brothers. This son, Jacob, will now be Lord of all of his brothers, all of the earth. And in asking that, um, may those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed, Isaac's actually reaching back very explicitly to the promise that God gave to Abraham um, that the world would only be blessed now through his family. And so the promise is now passed on to the third generation. It's a huge moment. But it's come to lying Jacob inside his brother's clothes. And Jacob has finally heard his father's blessing. But he knows it's not really his. What what do you make of all this? Is this saying that God doesn't care about sin? Is it saying we should be cheating for the blessing? Well, we already know at this early stage in the Bible story that God will not tolerate sin. Think of the fall, the way the people were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Think of the flood. So this story isn't saying God doesn't care about sin. What it is saying is that God will bless the world through this family, through this lying man even, despite their sin. Jacob's sin is not enough to stop the blessing. Something is different now. Something's changed between the Garden of Eden and Isaac's tent. Same tactics going on, same deception, but a different result. 
He will be blessed. God will not go back on his promise. And to see the ultimate reason that something is different, we actually need to fast forward through 2,000 years of history. Um, And we come to the opening of Matthew's Gospel. And we find there a family tree of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, And it begins with Abraham. And Matthew's highlighted in that family tree a number of dodgy characters, including Jacob, the cheat, including Isaac, the self-centred old man. And it all ends up with Jesus. And what Matthew's trying to show us is that Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham, the true one through whom all these promises to bless the world will come. Even his dodgy ancestors will be blessed through Jesus. And as, as, the, as the gospel goes on, we see that Jesus is exactly what we've been crying out for in this passage. He's the obedient son who really does deserve his father's blessing. At Jesus' baptism, uh, God declares, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so when Jesus dies, he is really able to bear our curse, that curse that we deserve for not being God's obedient children. And so as we come to Christ now and bow the knee before him, he is able to share with us that blessing of Abraham, that blessing that Jacob cheated to get. Our sin is taken away so that as we come to Christ, God is able to say of us, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This passage shows very clearly that it is now through Jacob that all the promises will come. And ultimately, they flow to Jesus. And so it is in Jesus, and only in Jesus, that God is able to justly bless us, despite our sin. And so coming back to this passage, this is not a passage saying cheat to get the blessing. But it's saying that we will be blessed. We will be blessed, despite being cheats. Let me put it very simply. In Christ that equation that we normally think of between uh, being good and getting the blessing has been broken. That's what this passage is illustrating. And I know that for many of us, it's actually deeply ingrained in our consciences from growing up and just from the fact of being humans that we have to pay our way through. We have to be good to get God's blessing. And let this passage show you that it is not true It is not true. God will bless us despite our sin. And so however much of a mess we've made of of last week, of last year, of our family lives, will you take that to heart this morning? Will you claim that for your own? Will you say to yourself that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me? Well, Jacob's story will continue. God is not done with Jacob. There will be changes. Uh, But we need to see here that God begins with very ordinary people. He begins with people like us. Jacob is going to have an extraordinary life. But he is a very ordinary person. He is a very sinful person that God has chosen to bless. 
Well, no sooner has Jacob left than Esau comes back uh, from hunting, um, and he goes and cooks up the food, and he confidently enters Isaac's tent. Uh, And that begins that fourth and final conversation between Esau and Isaac. We don't have time to really look at very much of this this morning. Um, But in many ways, this is the emotional climax of the story. The mistake is quickly uncovered, uh, and it's the reactions of Isaac and Esau that really raise the stakes of what we've just been talking about. Isaac trembles violently. Esau, when he hears his father's words, verse 34, bursts out with a loud and bitter cry and says to his father, Bless me. Me too, my father. It's gut-wrenching. Verse 37. Do you have any one blessing? Verse 38, sorry. Do you have any one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. It's tragic. It's a word we use a lot these days, isn't it? But this is truly tragic, watching Esau disintegrate. Can you imagine this big, hairy man sobbing aloud as he realizes he has missed out on the blessing? We might feel sorry for Esau. We might think Esau's been conned here. But the way the narrator's told the story stops us doing that. We saw last week that Esau sold his blessing to Jacob, and it says that he despised his birthright. He didn't care about God. Um, In the intervening material, we've heard some stuff saying that Esau's made some decisions that show again and again that he doesn't care about God and his purposes. He's got married uh, to women who are not Christians, essentially, in modern terms. And so Esau's valued his own marriage and building a life for himself, Uh, more than he's valued God and his family. And so, as Christians, Esau is a warning for us this morning. Here's what the writer to the Hebrews says. Afterwards, when Esau wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. We've been seeing that In Christ, God will bless us, despite our sin. And what Esau's tears show us is that this really, really matters. It's easy to play spiritual games with God. It's easy to mess him around and take him lightly. And so let Esau's tears be a warning to us this morning not to do that. Don't play games with God. Commit yourself to Jesus. If you want to avoid Esau's tears, commit yourself to Jesus. And Esau shows us as well that that commitment will play out in the everyday nitty-gritty of life. Who we go out with, who we marry, whether we commit to a church or just drift in and out, depending on whether the rugby's on. These things will matter in the long run. Over and over again in Genesis, what you sow, you reap. Decisions now about how we care for our family, uh, how we love our wives or our husbands, uh, whether to show favoritism to our kids, those things will bear fruit in the future. And so spiritually, somehow, between the nitty-gritty of putting the laundry in the washing machine uh, and getting the kids to school, we have to make time to invest in God and prioritise him. And if we do that, well, it will yield a future harvest. Well, that's where we leave the story for today. A cliffhanger, really. What's going to happen? 
how is Esau going to respond? How is Jacob going to respond? What's going to happen as God comes into this story more clearly? We'll pick that up um, next week. But as we close, this passage tells us that however sinful we are, God will bless us despite our sin. It tells us that his blessing is only now found in Jacob's descendant, the Lord Jesus. And so if we want to avoid shedding tears like Esau, we must run to Jesus. We must bow the knee before him. And as we do that, in the everyday, ordinary lives that we have, in the decisions that we make, well, however ordinary or unhappy our lives turn out to be, however much we fail, we can be sure that we do have the blessing of God's eternal friendship. Shall we pray to our Father? Our Father, we confess that we don't deserve your blessing, that we've all gone away from your good purposes for us. We've not been good. And yet, Father, your word tells us that you delight now in us as your children, as we come to Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you that Jesus has borne our sin away so that we could be blessed despite our sin. Father, we pray that we might be those who cling on to Christ, who prioritize him, who make time for him, who live all of our lives in obedience to him. In his name we pray. Amen.